Family, it's Dre, one of the producers of the show, bringing you a very special interview. We want you to sit back and enjoy this VIP experience here in the lounge. Enjoy. Dr. DeAndre, the executive producer of the show, and I'm excited to have this opportunity to interview Dr. Aletha Maybank. Dr. Maybank is a pediatrician working in preventative medicine and public health. She is currently the inaugural Chief Health Equity Officer and Vice President of the American Medical Association. Prior to this, Dr. Maybank became Deputy Commissioner in the NYC Health Department over the Brooklyn District Public Health Office and launched the Office of Minority Health as its founding director in the Suffolk County Department of Health Services. Outside of all of this, she teaches medical and public health students, was former president of the Empire State Medical Association, and is co-founder of the We Are Doc McStuffins movement. Welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Dr. Maybank. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I know as a worker in uh, the public health sector, you have no choice but to, to be working through everything COVID-19 related. So we wanted to take a little time to, to get your perspective of where we're going um, with this pandemic. COVID-19 has disproportionately affected the Black community. We have to consider racism as a public health issue and all of the many ways it plays into how the Black community is being affected by COVID-19. In a piece you wrote for the NY Times, you spoke about the importance of addressing structural inequities in communities of color when, comb when combating the disease. What must be done, in your opinion, to ensure that we are actively and effectively addressing these inequities? Yes, so thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think a, a big important part of it, and, and we've seen this happen so far, is for us as you know, physicians, um, Black physicians, but any physician, um, to kind of elevate their voice um, and to use their voice and their power in that way. We're credible messengers, so I think it's really important for us to call out um, disparities, inequities, injustices in health, um, and to really call and demand for action that we know um, we deserve uh, as communities of color, as communities of color, as it relates to us being physicians, but also you know the people that we're serving and our family and friends. Uh, and so I think that's a big part of you know starting to address is naming the injustices um, and demanding action from them and uh, and putting action forward. I mean the reality is is that you know our systems were never designed really um, for black and brown communities um, to be able to thrive. Uh, and, and they were designed mostly to exclude. And so we see that play out in the data um, that is presenting itself all across the country. It's really hard to run from in the way that folks have been able to in the past. And so in order to like really rebuild our systems of health, both the healthcare system and public health system, you know, we have to look more towards like the structures and the policies that produce those inequities in the first place. 
and then address the structural racism and, and the values um, that people have about black and brown bodies and really challenge them. Yeah, and I, I love how you you go into you know the fact that we haven't had the best uh, track record with um, with the health systems that uh, America has set up. And so um, I know that you were featured in an NBC News article highlighting some of the importance of, you know, including Black participants in vaccine trials for, for this specific pandemic. Um, there is a long history of mistrust in medicine in general uh, when it comes to Black communities, uh, notably Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks, the, the stories go on and on. Right. Um, so I want to know what steps... Uh, you think we have to take to build trust between uh, the medical community and and black patients? Yes. Yeah, so I think you know, as you said, you know, this is this is a repeated story on and on. Henrietta Lacks. Um, we just uh, have done a lot to celebrate her life and her contributions recently um, as a nation. And then you know, Tuskegee, very well known. But the reality is that folks are experiencing this experiencing these these realities of injustice and um, lack of trustworthiness, right? It's one issue for us not to trust institutions, but institutions have to own up and take responsibility that they are not they have not been trustworthy. And I think mm -hmm. that provides a different frame uh, and a different kind of sense of responsibility um, of who needs to to get through this. And you know, I think for be able to move forward this work, you know, there hasn't been much conversation about the role of institutional racism within the context of medical institutions mm -hmm. um, and what we need to do. And so now I think many institutions are confronted with asking, what is the value proposition that exists in this country that produces these harmful realities for black and brown people? Um, and there are these myths that we have to undo in order to, to really see the path forward, we have to undo the myth of hierarchy, right? Based on one skin color and, and that white is supreme. Um, and many folks will say, you know, they don't believe this, but our data and our outcomes show something differently, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the systems also tell us differently based on people's experience experiences. So these in institutional failures have definitely been exposed over and over again. The refusal to test, as we've seen now, little to no treatment, turning people away, not paying attention to symptoms. All of this creates that kind of sense of, of mistrust. And so, you know, as a way forward, um, and actually another piece of how this shows up, just to mention real quickly before the way forward, you know, is that there are a lot of false perceptions even amongst us as physicians. Um, and it creates outcomes in which blacks are less likely to receive pain meds. So we don't, we don't experience pain in the same way. You know, children are less likely to receive antibiotics as a standard of care when they're there. Um, and we know we did this study with med students in 2016 that they still believe that blacks have less nerve endings or they have thicker skin. Um, and so, you know, looking at this, we have to, as institutions, again, be able to reckon with that history that we have of kind of exploitation and exclusion of people. In the more immediate future, what we need to do is a lot of focus around trust and building trust um, with our communities. And this isn't, to me, I, I say this all the time, it's not a, a rocket science thing. You know, We all need trust in any relationship that we have in order to help us move forward and to help us thrive. And so institutions are not 
you know, are not outside of that um, need for our communities. And so I think there, this trust really should be built, you know, long before COVID. But, yeah. you know, being present is going to be absolutely critical. Being transparent um, in communication. Risk communication is absolutely critical during this time from a public health standpoint. If we aren't transparent, we aren't communicating risk in a very clear um, way that also is accessible in many people's language, accessible in different reading levels, we aren't going to get that message forward. And that that builds up um, those walls and those barriers that actually exacerbate um, mistrust within our communities. Uh, and I, I think there's going to have to be lots of efforts um, to work directly within the context of neighborhoods in which people live. I think messengers become really important. We think about us as NMA and NMA physicians of color and black physicians, we're going to need to be messengers of what to do, the information that we have to help build trust as well, especially when it comes to vaccines and the trials that are happening for right now for the vaccines and participation of black and brown folks um, in these trials. And then when the vaccine is ready, you know, um, uptake of that vaccine as well. But it, it's a it's a double-edged sword in some level because I completely get um, the lack of trust that's there. And it doesn't only exist for black and brown communities in this particular circumstance. Trust overall is at, is kind of um, at risk right now for the entire country. Absolutely. I, you, you couldn't have said that any, any better. I, I truly do believe that we can't just expect trust. Um, we have to put in the work to, right. to gain the trust that we lost because you know, we have had a terrible history of um, injustices in this country. So thank you for explicitly saying that, um, you know, there has been a lack of trust um, and a lack of effort on the part of our health systems. Um, I do want to touch on uh, the, the piece about institutions that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Last month, our country officially withdrew from the World Health Organization, uh, which is an organization for global health efforts. Um, what implications do you anticipate this having on us as far as testing and access to newly developed treatments and vaccinations um, when those things are, are concerned? And how do we how do we address it? How do we address it moving forward? Yes, I think you know this this also falls in line with another myth. And Dr. Kamara Jones, if you all aren't familiar with her by now definitely, you know, an icon in the space of health equity, a living legend, and um, talks lots about these myths that prevent us from advancing. And one of them is American exceptionalism. Um, it totally undermines our opportunity as it relates to equity, but it, it undermines our opportunity as a country to fully realize and appreciate all of the opportunities and advances and learning lessons that there are worldwide. Um, that there are to improve health. So withdrawing from the World Health Organization is just another example of that American exceptionalism that we don't need, you know, others. We don't, we can do this by ourselves. You know, we're the best, you know, in, in the world. And, you know, all of that has, has, um, has, has consequences, you know, and, and we're seeing it now. And so the idea to kind of pull out from the World Health Organization and to be kind of connected and, and, collective with other countries is quite bizarre and it's really quite dangerous. Um, and, you know, AMA, the American Medical Association um, that I now kind of sit in and represent, 
you know, released a full statement back on July 7th, you know, about this and how it is potentially a major setback to science, public health and global coordination, kind of as you already mentioned. Um, the World Health Organization has played a very leading role in protecting and supporting and promoting health in the United States and other places. Uh, and so to withdraw at this point in time, uh, when we desperately need leadership, um, mm -hmm. it just doesn't make full sense at all. Um, so, you know, we've called on, you know, Congress and folks to definitely reject, you know, the administration's withdrawal from um, the World Health Organization. Um, because ever, I think even the pandemic itself represents that we need to be part of a global effort. This is a pandemic. It is global. So for us not to be connected to that global conversation in, in a structured way, um, you know, we'll have our relationships, of course, but in a structured and formal way, uh, it definitely puts us at risk as a country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to, you know, piggyback off of that and, you know, how you're mentioning American exceptionalism. Um, we seem to be one of very few countries who uh, pride ourselves in individualism, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily like the yep. collective effort of trying to um, to do anything, honestly. Um, and so a common theme in our media has been uh, how do we adjust to our new normal as if we can't get this under control if we all, you know, decide to be and act as a collective. So I want to I want to just see your opinion on how do you envision life after COVID? If there is a life after COVID, will life return to normal? <laughs> like, are we expecting a new normal? What What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, life life is still here, right? To some level, mm -hmm. to a large level, we're talking, we're still in life, and life is going to exist post COVID. Mm -hmm. um, how that life exists is, is your question, um, and the context, and I'm sure others have said this already before, of normal versus not normal. I don't, I don't feel our norms pre COVID were healthy and just and right. And so should we be going back to that? I would say no. And I think COVID really elevates that and, and exposes that even more so. Uh, and so what are we going to do? And what, how do we capitalize on this opportunity with these doors being open that we create uh, a society and a country that values uh, human beings, um, no matter what their skin color is, they value human beings. Um, and to the point where we claim and name that health is a human right uh, and that access to healthcare is a human right. That's one of our other um, gaps that we have within this country. Um, and it's gonna be really critical for us to have that in order to move forward. I think also how our systems are able to respond. And I think how we as leaders, right? Systems don't just respond just because um, mm -hmm. they respond to some external impetus that's out there. Right. So COVID is one. So systems are responding. But we as human beings, we as leaders within the, the health space can also, you know, serve as in, impetus for change. Um, so what are we going to do to vision a new future um, that does dismantle, that does, um, you know, dismantle racism within our healthcare system, uh, that does force us to move more upstream 
in our solutions. So it's not just about the downstream aspects of healthcare and care and services, but that our efforts and our advocacy are talking about more of those structural opportunities as it relates to housing, as it relates to wealth building, right? Wealth building is tremendous um, in terms of its connection to health outcomes in this country. Uh, and, and how do we, we push ourselves and push our institutions to look at, at those areas? How do we push medical education, residency education mm-hmm. to broaden what you all are taught and what med students are taught in, in school? Um, beyond what's happening in terms of clinical and basic care? How do you learn more about what's in the healthcare delivery system? How do you Mm -hmm. learn more about, again, what really fully creates health and what produces inequities? Like that should be a core part of medical curriculum. And there is movement in that, thank goodness, at this point in time. Um, And so I think that evolution that's going to come forward, you know, and where the next couple of years, there will be competencies and standards that are built into medical education and residency curriculums, um, and then requirements for licensure. That's already happening actually in Michigan State. They have to have, this is bias. I think it has to go beyond just bias training, but you know there are some um, mandates that are starting to happen that folks need to have this type of education um, in order to become a physician in this country. So I think that's where we need to start moving towards. That is, that's good to hear that, that we're moving in the right direction, at least, um, slow, but you know, it's better than nothing, honestly. And, uh, you were talking about, you know, the side from the healthcare system, how do we go about working with our communities that I don't want to say they seem like they aren't, aren't interested anymore in what COVID is doing or are just pretending like it's not there anymore. How do we go about, you know, making this a collective effort with the communities that we're serving? Um, because sure. it's over um, and, I, you know, people are pretending or just going about life as if it was normal again anyway. Yeah. You know, I think this is another area of, of trust and, and, you know, why people um, disengage, I think the reasons can vary. Uh, I, you know, once you start to see the community kind of transmission and spread go down, you start to see less effect in your neighborhoods. People start to get comfortable. It happens. I, I'm in New York City and I see it um, mm-hmm. around friends and family and I see it and I experience it. Uh, But we have to keep telling ourselves and we have to keep spreading the messages of the basics of wearing a face mask. We just launched a campaign on face masks and wearing them, you know, our social distancing, you know, our hand washing techniques, our sneezing in our elbows. All of those things are absolutely critical that we still continue to message at this point in time and still work with others and frame like, look. You know, we're, we're good now, not in all places. I'm in New York City. So we're in a better place than we were, you know, a few months ago. But there are places across the country that are not doing well, right? So we know this. And in those areas and in these areas, we just have to constantly um, share those messages with each other and our families and friends. You know, I had um, the experience of having a death about two and a half months ago. Um, mm-hmm. from an extended family member. And it was really difficult because when you have, you're trying to grieve during a time like this, your our tendency is to be close to one another, right? 
and to want to to hug and to interact. Um, and and you're upset. And, and the message that I told uh, one of my friends is that, you know, we have to say, you know, we don't want to have to do this over and over again. You know, so it's up to us to like wear our face masks and to do the social distancing. And we know we're upset, but how many times do we want to go to somebody's funeral, you know, in, in this sense? And so that's the message, you know, to one another. I, you know, the larger message, though, that I think is important is that, you know, Black people aren't to blame, right, for, for COVID. Um, we have to look to the structures that create greater exposure, mm-hmm. the jobs that we are forced to have. Um, because we don't have those same wealth building opportunities, um, the lack of investment within our neighborhoods in which our hospitals are not this equally invested at all, um, as compared to wealthier, whiter neighborhoods. Um, and then, you know, the long history of kind of trauma and chronic stress that already puts us at increased risk for having certain diseases. Uh, and that, you know, the underlying conditions that everybody was mentioning initially. So mm-hmm. all of those are really important to highlight as well, because we don't need to be blamed any further for our existence. Yeah, absolutely. I thank you for for reframing it in that direction, because I I see oftentimes that, yeah, we are placing the blame on ourselves um, and it is in increasingly frustrating um to to just be sitting in the house sometimes so i i understand that people feel the need to to want to get back to lives that um that we were living before um so in in that same vein um we haven't been talking a lot about how this is affecting people's mental health um, we've been talking a lot about, you know, the, the somatic symptoms, um, but not necessarily about how people are dealing with this on a mental level, um, during this entire pandemic, uh, life has changed drastically over the course of honestly less than a year, um, including losing jobs, losing insurance, like you were mentioning family member funerals. Um, so how how do we best address the negative impacts that COVID is having on our mental health? Um, because I don't see a lot of that being taken into account, at least from like uh, a community level. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's not. Be, I I think there is not a lot that has been able to address it on many levels. Um, and you know, you think about this decision about your children and going back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, parents having to stay home, you know, and parents not being able to stay home, all of this affects our mental health. So, you know, it, it's going to affect every single one of us um, at this point in time. You know, we just did a, we do this series called Prioritizing Equity um, about mm-hmm. every other week. And this one, this last week was on mental health. Uh, and so we had two kind of experts, actually the former uh, AMA president, uh, Dr. Patrice Harris, who's the first black female president of the AMA. And a yeah. psychiatrist was on the show. So if y'all want to check it out, please check it out. Absolutely. But, um, you know, COVID again shines and, and sheds a light that, you know, access to mental health services is an issue. Um, the hope is, you know, with telehealth, that there may be a little bit of a greater opportunity to have access, but there's still issues of access as it relates to 
cost. There will still be issues of access as it relates to, um, you know, can, do people have um, the band um, in order to to be able to have internet? Um, there's the access to even having enough mental health providers. Yeah. Um, that is still of concern. And so there's a lot of work and that's part of the visioning. I think that we have to do the future. Like how do we not, how do we vision a future that integrates, um, as you said earlier, somatic, but how does it integrate our physical and mental emotional health? So we're sending up systems in that kind of way, uh, so that they can be responsive. They can be trauma informed, uh, mm-hmm. for times, uh, at, like this during, uh, COVID. Absolutely. Thank you for for that. I have one more question for you. As medical students, this this podcast and SNMA in general is dedicated towards um, you know underrepresented minorities in medicine, but we also have a, a vast network of alumni. We have a vast network of pre medical students. So, what advice do you have for us as medical students, pre medical students, residents? Uh, about how to relate and engage our patients who are dealing with this uh, during this time? What can we do? Yeah, I think, you know, continue being empathetic and, and humble, right? And ask the questions in, in which you you need to ask. I think start asking questions as it relates to people's experience of mm-hmm. racism. Um, because, you know, even going back to your your former question, you know, oftentimes when we talk about mental health, we're not also talking about like the incident as it relates to George Floyd. So there was like all these confounding um, yeah. moments, right? And and Not going on. <laughs> yeah, and really exacerbating um, one another and the effects of one another. So it's really important that we create and talk more about these particular issues and our patient's experience um, with racism uh, and how it's affecting themselves and their families within the context of the interviews that we have. Um, and I then, you know, as students, and I think students are, y'all are quite remarkable, you know, um, is to advocate. You all really understand. You, you get um, structures better than my generation did and the impact of structure and, and the production of inequities. And so continuing to kind of use your voice to elevate those stories of your patients um, and using the privilege that you have, uh, that you learn from them, but the privilege that you have um, in order to actually create change in the future, I think is really uh, critical at this time. Uh, And I think that when you start to voice, you also, people will model after you, right? So it's not just about you, but it's about all those students that are gonna be coming after you um, to, to also have them model you. And I think about, you know, the late Congress um, and uh, John Lewis, uh, yeah, is, you know, who said it's not enough to say it will get better by and by, but that each of us has a moral obligation to stand up and to speak up and to speak out. So when you see something that's not right, you must say something and you must do something. And I get yeah. there are risks. There are always risks in doing that. But many people fought, you know, and his life is an exemplar of that. Um before us, you know, with their own lives so that we could have the freedoms in quotes that we are able to have today, that some of us are able to have today. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you, Dr. Maybank, for for just taking the time out to talk to us. We just appreciate everything that you do to advocate for 
for us as well as your patients uh, and the health of, of this country, honestly. Thank you, Dr. Maybank. Okay, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Okay, we hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Maybank, but now it's time to hear from you. Email us your thoughts on this discussion and suggestions on who you'd like to have in the lounge next at podcast at snma.org. And we wouldn't be us if we didn't plug our socials. So don't forget to engage with everything SNMA on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're here in the lounge every first Friday. So we'll see y'all next month. Peace.